This episode features discussions and interviews around sensitive topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Hello, and welcome to The Problem With Men. This is part two of our look at false allegations. If you haven't heard the first episode, then you can find it in your regular podcast player or via our website at theproblemwithmen.co.uk. If you'd like to support the work that we're doing in raising issues that face men, then please consider making a donation or buying a t-shirt. Links to this are in our episode description. In this episode, we're continuing to follow Liam's story. Here's what's happened so far. We'd met at a, a party that a mutual friend was, was hosting, and we, I mean, yeah, we, we, we got on really well. Um, and it was kind of just... Uh, really stereotypical teenage kind of romance you know we were texting we went on a couple of dates and from there we were in a relationship for about a year and year and just under a year and a half around that sort of um, range the relationship fizzled out at that point we wanted each other to be happy and we we decided that, that we weren't the people to, to make each other happy and that was that was that. With the relationship behind him, half a year later, and completely out of the blue, Liam was arrested and accused of rape and sexual assault. I mean, I, at that point, something inside of me just absolutely broke. Like, I just couldn't comprehend what was what was happening. From that moment, I've, I've, I've never been the same person. He was held in custody. So I was just sat in this box on my own, just just completely broken but i sat in that room and i i remember it you know this blue plasticky mattress thing and curled up for just the longest time waiting for someone to come and get me out and of course no one does like you just you just continue to wait that's what happens and faced interrogation from the police well if you're telling the truth you know surely you're just carefree and it's more like once you realize that, that their reasoning for why they're asking certain questions and the way that they're asking them and that they're looking to just find anything that might support her side of it, whether or not it could be interpreted differently or, or however. Liam was eventually released while the investigation continued. With the prospect of a charge and long prison sentence hanging over him, he tried to prepare himself and his loved ones for the worst outcome. If I went down... I mean, they could make every precaution in the universe. I was going to find a way to commit suicide. I wasn't ready to live my life in prison or just carry on in a place or just in a world where I was labelled something that, you know, I couldn't even comprehend, let alone do. Listening to the Problem with Men podcast. Liam's investigation dragged on for almost two years. Liam tried to live as normal a life as possible. He continued his criminology degree and was remarkably honest about his situation. And then I told people at uni that I'd known for a, a, a few months, but I'd just sort of explained the situation that I found myself in, and they were. I mean, incredible throughout. There's, you know, all of my friends were just unbelievable levels of support. And, and that was 
I mean, that was ultimately what prevented me from, I don't know, you know, going off the rails completely or, or suicide or any of those things. If I didn't have that level of support, I don't think, I think the two years would have been too much. I think that would have been, I think maybe a year. And I, I think by that point, I would have just been done. I mean, I was fairly done after about five months and there was a point where it, it crossed my mind. But after about a year, I think that would have been enough. I mean, I hated the fact that I had, uh, again, this is part of where you blame yourself a lot in it. Like, I hated the fact that I brought this person into other people's lives and the impact that it was having on their life now. Despite the support of his mum and friends that kept him alive, he knew that a conviction would shatter the life he was working towards. I mean, that's it. You know, your life's on the sex... Well, you spend your life on the sex offenders register. Anyone that sort of maybe had even like a 5% doubt in their mind but didn't voice it would instantly say, I, you know, I knew it. I knew he was that type and because that's what the public perception would suddenly become. That's just so you'd swing whichever way the wind blew. Um, yeah, stupidly, my mum and I were kind of those sometimes not not in like a we'd, we'd publicly shame anyone but you'd, you'd read news stories about celebrities that had been arrested and you'd sort of be like oh, maybe is there something you know and, and it wouldn't be like a you know my mum and I wouldn't be like well they definitely did it because somebody accused them we'd more just be like oh maybe they didn't do that but they must have done something maybe it's that they didn't perceive it as force the unbearable pressure that must have loomed over Liam was worsened by a lack of updates from the police. I hounded my officer in charge um, quite a lot to just get updates. I mean, a call a week probably doesn't sound like a lot, but to somebody that's probably getting that from every case that they've got, um, it's probably quite a lot. But I, I actually called him um, two hours before he called me back after a lecture and said... Um, I'm really sorry, but, um, yeah, you've been charged. Uh, And it was really, it's weird because obviously the police officer in charge is the one that hid the evidence or didn't, let's say didn't disclose if we want to be, um, democratic about it. But, but there's more, um, I don't know, there was, that was the, the real feeling of betrayal because he had told me in the conversation two hours previous that he had put on his recommendation I wasn't charged. The officer in charge would have then spoken to prosecutors at the Crown Prosecution Service who would have ultimately made any final decisions. And two hours later I got a call to say I was charged and I was absolutely furious just at the fact that if the police officer that's in charge is telling you you shouldn't charge someone. Why on earth would you charge them? Where's where's the logic? And then obviously found out that, that he hadn't put that at all. It just was a load of rubbish. So um, I, I think the feelings of it were just made worse. Just, just of it carrying on for so long when somebody's telling you that they're trying to end it for you when actually they're the one that caused it to go on for so long. You know, looking back on it, that's that was what made it hurt more because you have absolute faith that this person is going to do the right job for you, you know, that, that, that you believe that they're going to do and they're going to find out the truth and they, they completely have your back. And actually they didn't, they were doing the opposite. They were just kind of suggesting to, to push through and hiding the things that would show that it didn't happen. 
the the phrase of like um that they they won't charge you unless they think there's a likelihood of conviction is what is, I think is the exact terminology that's that's thrown around. The Crown Prosecution Service decided to charge Liam with twelve counts of rape and sexual assault. Dennis Eady is a lecturer at Cardiff University and runs the Innocence Project, which encourages students to re-examine cases where there may have been a miscarriage of justice or wrongful conviction. He highlights how society has influenced charging decisions. It's quite interesting that it's an indication of how things have changed in terms of prosecution policy because it's not uncommon for people to have had an accusation like 10 years ago from the same person who, uh, and at that time, there's no further action. It's considered that simply isn't enough evidence to go for it. But then 10, 20 years later, whatever it is, there's a, there's a trial and conviction on exactly the same evidence. Nothing else has happened. Ros Burnett is a senior research associate at the Centre of Criminology at the University of Oxford. So we've got a sort of contest there between false, if you like, false positives and false negatives. If there is um, a switch of public opinion, a consensus that most people who claim they've been abused are speaking the truth um, and policies that back that up, then it's felt that it's, it's worth shifting that balance so that more people will be convicted. And we know that there is a huge attrition rate for people who make claims of, of rape and serious sexual offences from the, the point of reporting that they were victims to actually gaining a conviction. There is a huge attrition rate, and especially more so recently, since more people have been encouraged to come forward and report abuse, no matter how long ago it was, you know, they've been encouraged to make those claims. Again, whereas at one time they'd be told, well, we can't really proceed with this because we don't, it's too long ago, memories will be shaky, the evidence won't be there. That has shifted. Um, and this is where we are now, where unfortunately a lot of genuine victims are unable to gain either prosecutions or convictions. But at the same time, we may have people who either believe they were abused or who have other reasons to deliberately make a false allegation, who will go forward feeling that there is some possibility of getting that conviction. And it may result in a false conviction. So it seems that pressure from society is slowly unhooking the safety net within our justice system. Society has decided it needs more convictions. And innocent people going to jail is just collateral damage. In an unfortunate twist of fate, whilst under investigation and awaiting his trial, Liam continued at university working towards his criminology degree. The problem was, was that the further I was going into the case, the more I was learning about the criminal justice system. But in my third, in my third and final year, as the build-up to my trial was happening, my term topic was about should all women be believed when coming forward in accusations. And I, in the, the two, three weeks build-up, that was the hardest um, time anyway because obviously you're building up to the trial and everything's kind of coming to a head and there's all that anxiety that now maybe you were able to bury but it comes flooding back in at once 
and uh, there were two two standout moments really for me in the in those lectures one was that question was asked in my lecture and i had to really keep my like you know bite my tongue and and really just i didn't want to draw any attention to myself i didn't want people to know that i was going through this i was really adamant by this point that like i had a trial in three weeks if i if i can't keep it together now i'm not gonna be able to keep it together for the trial and i'm just you know i'm just gonna absolutely break down and um there was a girl at the front of my class who um you know obviously in my mind something must have happened for her to have the opinion but it was very much it, it felt as if that her perspective was absolutely everyone should be believed um and then the other the other moment i think it was in the same lecture actually that that, that was just before that when the question was asked there was this mock trial and it was this 50 50 word against word kind of trial and we watched like a video of like how somebody was drunk both of them were drunk and how their behavior was on the night and you know i guess kind of what you would expect to people to picture when they're being told both sides of of a case and so we actually saw like a video of what what had happened um and then it's sort of like you didn't see the full extent of you know like how they ended up having intercourse and, and how they were intimate further than that and um and then it was all brought up in this trial and it was it, it was a trial specifically to divide opinion you know specifically of like would you say guilty or not guilty would you say that this is beyond reasonable doubt and uh, I, I remember I, I clawed at my hand absolutely clawed at my hand I've never felt so um immersed in something because it was it, as much as there were two characters on the screen and it was acting and blah 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 it felt that I was then looking at it from the perspective of a juror and what I was feeling, that confusion and whether or not I would think that they're guilty or whatever was exactly how a juror would feel. And gut instinct says, or feels as if it says it's safer to convict. It sounds so ridiculous because I've been on the other side of it, but it feels as if it's safer to convict because is it, you know, and this is like the moral dilemma, is it worse to put somebody innocent in prison that maybe did it or is it worse to let somebody free that 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 maybe did it and they they then you know then there's another victim or there's a series of victims and how responsible you feel for that it's impossible to know how many false allegations of rape or serious sexual assault there are some never get reported to the police and people's reputation safety and career are quietly damaged beyond repair as rumors circulate around communities and social media in some instances, police work out there is no or little evidence, and the allegations dropped. Before becoming a politician and leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer was the head of the Crown Prosecution Service, or CPS. During his time there, he did some work to understand the level of accusations that were false. Matthew Scott is a criminal barrister. There are very few easy answers. It's a difficult, difficult area of, of, of the law. I mean, there may be ways of, of, of estimating it, which, which are better than other ways, um, but there are also some pretty poor ways of estimating it. This, when, when I, I think under Keir Starmer, when he was DPP, uh, he conducted an exercise um, w in which he looked at how many prosecutions there had been 
for making false allegations. And and he discovered, or he probably knew, knew before he started, that in fact there have been very few prosecutions um, and were annually very few prosecutions for making false allegations. Um, and that was presented and, and perhaps presented somewhat disingenuously by, by Keir Starmer as being um, evidence that there weren't many false allegations, when in fact, of course, it wasn't evidence for that. It was evidence that there weren't many prosecutions for making false allegations. Now, there are lots of reasons why people wouldn't be prosecuted, even if they have made false allegations. Um, first of all, there's a the problem of, of proving it. Um, uh, secondly, there's the problem that many people who make these allegations um, may have mental health issues that make it inappropriate for them to be prosecuted in, in any particular case. Um, and thirdly, there may just be a, a, a lack of enthusiasm for prosecuting people because of the fear that if people are prosecuted for making false allegations, people who have real allegations will be deterred from making complaints. Um, uh, and that's uh, almost always when these prosecutions do take place. Um, people make the point that, oh, you, you've deterred real complainants, or you might have deterred real complainants for making true allegations. Ros Burnett again. Well, unfortunately, it's not a crime to make false allegations. So, you know, there's no recording of false allegations as a crime. They may be recorded if um, they become cases of perjury or wasting police time. But how would that be known? There's very few cases where if if there was a lack of evidence um, and if it does come down to the accuser's word against the accused word, then um, the benefit of the doubt has to be given to the accuser. Um, that's how it works now. Even in, in um, cases that go to court and the person is acquitted at the trial, very often the judge and certainly the police announcements after the acquittal will thank the um, complainant for, com- for being brave enough to come forward. But to go back to what we do about <laughs> um, the numbers, of the prevalence of false allegations, the, the, the kind of statistics that are cited Um, perhaps most reliably cited, have been from cases where there has been some evidence that the allegation was false and that it's uh, actually become a court case where the person who made the claim was prosecuted. Now, if we include all those that don't have any substantial evidence, then we can't call them crimes and there's not really been very much in the way of studies the, um, the regular victim surveys that are carried out by the government, by the Ministry of Justice, but they are based on victims' self-reports of crimes. And it's not a crime to make a false allegation. If you believe it really happened, that's not a crime. You know, it's, it's, it's such a sensitive area. And there is this feeling that if false allegations are publicised, it's a, it's a legitimate fear. Um, it undermines the allegations of abuse that are made. There's some anger because of the publicity given to those cases. And one constantly reads of false allegations being rare and therefore, you know, shouldn't be highlighted. I was reading an article um, recently in The Guardian 
which was um, lamenting the amount of attention being given to Johnny Depp and um, Amber Heard case that's ongoing now and how there's been quite a lot of uh, criticism of Amber Heard suggesting that she's lying. And, and this article in The Guardian was objecting to that publicity, uh, specifying that it was undermining, making it more difficult for victims of sexual abuse. And that is a, a regular refrain. So if the justice system doesn't believe that false allegations are an issue and there's pressure on prosecutors to increase conviction rates, the only outcome is more innocent people being locked up. Dennis Eady. That, to me, is, is wrong in principle because it, it's going to influence the police and CPS just to not to work on the basis of the evidence on every individual case, but to work on, you know, do we need to get more convictions? It's, this, is a, this is madness. Um, and it goes back to what we were saying about the, the, the fact that some guilty people will get off in, in the process of safeguarding people who are innocent. Um, in my view, that's, that's the cost worth paying. Uh, because if you're working on a target, if you're working on a, a, play, a situation where people can't defend themselves in any way because it's so long ago or they can't challenge the complainant, uh, all of these type of things, or the, the evidence they have is, is disregarded because it was so long ago, um, so their alibi no longer stands. Um, there are other people may have died in the, in the process over the time. Um, so if you've, you've got that, a situation where the complainant is inevitably believed and is not challenged and the defendant cannot mount any kind of defence in terms of alibi, in terms of uh, challenge to the genuine nature of the complainant. Um, and we... we we refer to many of these cases now as no evidence cases because the only evidence is the accusation. And many of our clients and their relatives say, well, you know, I just can't believe that somebody be, can, can be convicted when the only evidence is an accusation. But it very often is. And, of course, that also makes it pretty much impossible to appeal because if there's no, no evidence in the first place, as we've learnt so often when making this podcast, issues that primarily affect men are usually off the agenda of government and policymakers. Research into false accusations which do predominantly affect men can be difficult to find funding for, as Ross Burnett explains. We lack someone in Parliament to represent the false accused. We might as well lie down and die because we don't exist. It's a hidden cause. But really echoes the feelings of many who are very, very alone with this. And they only have a few others who, who they know are in the same boat, who they can turn to. Um, but otherwise, they feel that they'll just continue to be suspects for the rest of their lives. There's a lack of information on the prevalence of false allegations. And I, I really think there is a need for quality, rigorous research on this, but it, it's something that to be done properly needs to be funded. And I, at the present time, because of the climate of opinion on this issue, um, funding bodies are not going to be interested in resourcing it. But I think it needs to be known that the research that is cited very often comes from um, 
old research that has where the informants are people who are claimed that they have been abused they're not exactly objective um, or it's limited to those who have been found out to be false allegations because there's been CCTV evidence perhaps or some some documentary evidence but that's few and far between as Liam's court date approached the stress and anxiety was building he considered drastic measures to try and regain some control of his situation. I don't think I'll ever really be able to to go in depth of like these are the moments where really I was that I mean there were points in the case, if we're being bluntly honest, where I, even I just didn't think that there was any going back, that I'd just made up my mind and I was either going to take my own life or I was going to plead guilty and just get just end the whole thing because um, it's just as hard watching the impact the, the ripple effect that it has and it's it, it, the uncertainty is so when it goes on for so long it's so just sickening you know, and like I said, like what, the, the the exact thoughts that you, the doubts that you go through in your own mind about your behaviour and how you acted or treated somebody are the exact same doubts that you have about other people when you hear this kind of thing and you try and justify because it's, I think it's actually harder to co- now in this day and age to comprehend why someone would lie about this than to comprehend that somebody would do something like this. That's the difficult part to get over, even now. The same, um, the same logic was applied to um, pleading guilty, and so many people think I'm absolutely crazy for saying that. I, like, you know, thought about it for a while. Um, you know, when I say a while, you get you know like a minute to decide, but really, really considered it because you're desperate for an end absolutely desperate for an end no matter what that end is at this point you just want it to end um and if you become less faithful that the truth will prevail and the justice system will you know find the truth out and and that people will actually see the more you start to think of ways that you can control the situation and those two things are it that the guilty plea and, and suicide are the two other alternatives other than just plowing on or whatever it's so hard to see that when you're so focused on what's currently happening you can't even think about what might happen if you falsely confess to something and and what the repercussions of that might be because you're so focused on ending what's happening in that moment affected by any of the topics discussed on today's podcast you can find support resources on our website at theproblemwithmen.co.uk if you're enjoying this podcast support our work by leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app the problem with men podcast For most of us, our only experience of the inside of a courtroom will be what we've seen in films and movies. The formalities and procedures can appear intimidating. It's not the judge, it's not the barristers, it's not the solicitors, it's not any of the the normal roles or people that you picture in a courtroom. It's the jurors. That's the bit 
that just I, I, like I still struggled so much with. I said to my friends and family, like, guys, there's a you know that there's a person in that that um jury who's already made up their mind and then maybe like the next day i was like okay three of them have made up their mind we haven't even heard any evidence at this stage and i said three of them have decided i'm guilty and all of my friends sort of half laughed at me and were like you're just being a bit paranoid like it's the stress of this you know you just need to calm down and think about it i promise you just look at look at there's a there's there was one woman i'm not going to describe her because i'm getting so much trouble but there was a woman in the in the jury that um one was really that you could see suddenly became very empathetic and, and and didn't believe what was what had been said and that happened after like bits of evidence had started to kind of come to light and contradictions were already being made really early on and you could see the change that suddenly she realized that actually you know, I was falsely accused and, and you saw that, but there was one woman, honestly, I, I picture her face every day. She walked in, she sat down, she decided, I think before he had even heard what the crime I was accused of was, had just decided I'd done it. Um, And I, I don't know if it's just that mentality of like, yeah, we're going to, you know, save the world today from another criminal or what, whatever the mentality is before she went in. I don't know if she psyched herself up. I don't know what she did, but she from, she didn't listen to any of the evidence. She just absolutely stared me down with this look of disgust. And my friends, as soon as I pointed it out, every person in the courtroom that, that I knew had said, yeah, she, she's, she's decided you're guilty. She's not even listening. She's just like, you could say anything at this point. I honestly think that my ex-partner could have confessed and she wouldn't have listened. Like it was just ridiculous. Um, because she was just so what she was more hell bent on. It felt as if, and I don't, I, there's never going to be a way of confirming this. And, and a lot of people still think I'm paranoid. What it really just felt like was that she made a point of like, she wanted me to know that, that she thought this, you know, like she, she wanted me to see because we made like we made eye contact. It was very awkward, stupidly because what, like what you do in the street, I like sort of like looked and you know, that little smile that everyone does. It's like you either do a smile or a nod and then you bend your head back down again because you've made that awkward eye contact. And it feels like you should do something to recognize that you've made that awkward eye contact. And I did that and I just thought, you idiot, why have you done? And it's just, it was just a reflex action. And, and it was because I also knew that she was just staring at me and I was hoping that maybe if I did that sort of like little flick, maybe she might nod at me and maybe I'd be like, actually I'm being really paranoid. And she, yeah, no, she didn't, she didn't take her eyes off me. She really was adamant that she's going to make as much eye contact as possible. And that's the, well, that's the stressful part, right? That That's the, seeing public opinion like when you can visibly see that somebody's got an opinion about you that's the bit that's really stressful and quite daunting luckily for liam the police had gathered evidence in the form of tens of thousands of text messages from his accuser's mobile phone although they denied that these messages had any relevance to the trial and didn't disclose the evidence the prosecution barrister agreed to hand over this evidence to the defense we had a lot of character witnesses and we had a lot of like friends and family. We had a lot of things that really, you know, there were a lot of contradictions in her statement, but it didn't feel like we have ever had anything definitive that was like, you are a liar. Like there was nothing in there where I would confidently say, 
there was no refuting that claim, you know. Um, and these text messages appeared. And even though that the prosecution disclosed them, I mean, this is probably the stupidest thing that they've done because if they hadn't disclosed them, nobody would have known the text messages would have existed. And the likelihood is if it was 50-50 word against word, people people do tend to go guilty. I think it, it, it is is what what I, in my experience from what I've seen in, in cases as well um, or what I've heard about with other cases. And so, you know, they disclosed it and in it, was the words it wasn't against my will or anything and i was just and it and it was obvious that she tried to backtrack she'd made a little white lie she didn't say rape she didn't say anything like that it wasn't like that kind of that wasn't what the conversation was going on about the conversation was explaining uh, her friend explaining her first time or whatever and 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 so um she then said a throwaway comment that was a little white lie and it, it was either for attention or it was, it was for something or, or whatever the reason was. Anyway, she, she made the little lie and then she tried to backtrack and a friend didn't let her. Um, a friend was very much like, no, we need to talk about this. You really need to talk about this. You can't say that you can't say something like that or whatever. And uh, again, I, I want to be clear for legal reasons. I'm not saying these out loud word for word. Um, and then at that point, she just ran with it. And that's where it snowballed. And so you could see how it started. But in it, it said it wasn't against my will or anything. And that was where she tried to take it back. And she couldn't. A friend had already, you know, read that initial text message and, um, you know, thought, I, I have to be an amazing friend here. Somebody's in need. And, and as anyone would, like, I, don't, I can't fault the person for that. I really can't. Um, she was just being a good friend, but what it led to indirectly was this spiral of when you realize you can't go back, you delve right into a lie and you make, you make it as detailed as possible. And as time went on over the two years, more detail was added. Random things were just added that didn't make any sense that contradicted things previous, but it would have been in the line of like a question of like, can you remember, um, what you did, um, after such and such like a certain day or whatever and then she would have said that in her first statement and then the police could have gone back and been like look we can't you know move forward with the case until we kind of know specifically what you you did around this sort of time after this x and x time or whatever and then all of a sudden it would be completely different to what she said in the first statement um and and that in that moment that was the moment first real point where i was like this isn't going anywhere now this this has to be dropped because if there's more text messages we're in a really 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 you know lucky spot that this even came out but even with that alone if you put that in front of a juror and then explain the sequence of events and all the contradictions and everything it was like a it it was kind of like her own words were were the downfall of the whole case because it didn't make sense then what she was saying after that um and so that was really, that was the moment, I think, where I was like, okay, this is where I really believe that this case was actually, even if it didn't get dropped, was going to end in not guilty. The newly disclosed evidence in Liam's case was staggering. And we found, I think, 100 to 150 discussions, like not not text messages, but 150 conversations just showing that this was complete nonsense um just beyond belief really that that those messages showed a completely different story person 
you know, wording that was what had been said in the, those statements. And when we started reading them out to the judge and even the prosecution was like, oh my gosh. Um, and everyone was just so shocked that this hadn't come to light sooner. And um, yeah, that, I mean, that's the bit that was surreal that on Thursday, on that Thursday, the judge was absolutely livid. He was like, why has this not been disclosed? This is a waste of everyone's time. We're four days deep into a trial and no one thought that maybe it might be a good idea to show that that he's innocent. Like, what what were you thinking? Um, Anyway, they had to write like a a letter of apology to the judge for wasting his time and and for wasting the court's time and and then they had two weeks to decide whether or not this was going to be like a mistrial and we were going to redo the trial in July the year after. I think it was going to end up being August because I had exams Um, and I asked for them to delay it because I wanted to do my exams then. Um, and um, which they agreed uh, or if they were just going to drop the case entirely and they were going to revisit whether or not there is a realistic possibility of of a conviction and they actually they took two weeks I think after about a week I got a call from my solicitor and I ran around the house screaming because she'd said like they've decided to drop the case it it will be official on on, I think it was the I can't remember what day it was. Maybe it was the 15th of December or something like that. Um, but you've you've heard it from us. that we, We've been told of their intention to drop the case entirely and for you to be exonerated. And, and I, you know, that moment was just the best feeling. After living under investigation for two years and spending four days in the dock, the case against Liam was ended with the judge eventually saying, There is something that has gone wrong, and it is a matter that the CPS, in my judgment, should be considering at the very highest level. Otherwise, there is a risk, not only of this happening again, but that the trial process will not detect what has gone wrong, and there will be a very serious miscarriage of justice. He leaves the courtroom an innocent man without a stain on his character. The CPS and Metropolitan Police launched a joint review into what happened. They concluded that the lack of disclosure of the text messages was the result of a combination of error, lack of challenge and lack of knowledge. Disturbingly, since Liam's trial and the use of text messages to uncover the truth, victims, groups and campaigners have actively been pressuring government to stop what they call digital strip searches. They want police to be banned from putting pressure on victims to agree to have their phones being searched for evidence. Dennis Eadie. Even since Liam's case, there has been more moves to try and prevent, for example, the police looking at the complainant's phone. This is seen as an intrusion on the complainant. It's not seen as an inclusion on the person accused. But increasingly, with current cases... The issue of telephones and internet communications, Facebook, all the rest of it, has become really quite crucial in evidentially because these can give away certain information. Uh, it's incredibly complicated because, of course, people build up thousands and thousands of messages and lots of phone calls and all the rest of it and texts. So it becomes massively complicated, expensive, but... Uh, 
it is it is like again with Liam's case the the examination of the complainant's phone was crucial to proving his innocence and since then particularly many groups and individuals have said well we must stop doing that it's an infringement on the complainant and you know it's persecuting them for complaining by looking into their privacy but if you don't do that again if you take that away it chips away yet another possible defense that someone accused might have there has to be an even playing field despite everything we've heard from liam about his ordeal he was incredibly lucky if he'd been found guilty his chance of appealing his conviction would have been next to impossible matthew scott I think the Court of Appeal has a very restrictive idea of, of when a conviction is unsafe. Um, lip service, and only lip service, is, is paid to the um, idea that, that if there's a lurking doubt about the safety of a conviction, that the Court of Appeal will quash it. Um, I think they should be much more ready to... Um, to find convictions unsafe than they are in practice. I think the, the, the sort of authority of last resort, the Criminal Cases Review Commission, um, if you've already appealed, you can go to them and if they think your um, conviction is, is, is unsafe or, or, or there's a, there's a um, good chance that the Court of Appeal will think it's unsafe, they can refer it back to the Court of Appeal. Um, I think it's a scandal that was when it was quite when it was introduced it was quite a an effective organization I think it's been underfunded now for years it's it's a real cinderella of the criminal justice system some of the uh, none of the commissioners I think I'm right in saying are any more full time it's hopelessly overworked um it just just doesn't have the resources to do what it it should be doing which is to be investigating um, cases, uh, as well as referring them back to the Court of Appeal in, in much greater numbers than it does. So I think a, a huge um, uh, injection of, of, of cash into the Criminal Cases Review Commission um, is long overdue. It won't happen, of course. Dennis Eady again. And I think you can only really understand the appeal system if you've actually attempted to appeal and work with lawyers and stuff and, and just realise just how much of a, a maze of uh, thinking it is and how, how incredibly difficult it is, how much work is involved just getting to an appeal, let alone actually winning it. It's something that uh, for a long time I didn't appreciate that and I didn't appreciate how restrictive the rules were. So the big question is, what can we do as men to protect ourselves from false allegations? Matthew Scott. I don't know what the answer to that is, really, to stop people making false allegations or to protect themselves. Um, I mean, people have been, in, in particular situations, um, people have been able to protect themselves. For example, there was a, a taxi driver in Yorkshire who... Um, who was made the subject of an allegation. Now, in fact, taxi drivers in Yorkshire, particularly taxi drivers of Pakistani origin in, in Yorkshire, I think fall into a class of person uh, that because of recent events are unlikely to get um, a terribly sympathetic hearing from a jury. 
um, this particular driver was of Pakistani origin. An allegation was made against him by a, a young woman that um, he had sexually assaulted her. Um, what what she didn't know was that he recorded everything that took place in his taxi and it showed conclusively that she was lying and that he wasn't. So, for example, for a taxi driver, well, yes, it's reasonable to record things in your cab. And in, in that case, um, he was almost certainly, I would have thought, saved from um, a wrongful conviction. Um, that's all very well for a taxi driver. I, I'm not sure how that really works in the sort of situation of a you know boy meets girl, um, both get horrendously drunk, have sex, um, and then she re- um, regrets it later and has to make an excuse to to somebody uh, uh, and says she's been raped or something like that. Um, I, I think I wouldn't recommend covert recording of sexual activity in in, <laughs> in that sort of situation. That that raises a lot of other issues. If, I mean, I suppose if, if, you, if you really want to, to 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 live your life with the constant fear that you're going to be falsely accused of of a sexual allegation, well, yes, you can. I suppose go around um, with a, a wallet full of or a pocket full of consent forms, um, but I think in the real world, that's not really that's not really very practical. Dennis Eady, I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that question because it has become so arbitrary now. If you don't have the ability to lodge a defence, then you have this weapon which could be used against you for whatever reason. We've seen this um, politically, and it it could happen. And I don't know how you defend yourself against that. Obviously, obviously, you'd be respectful to women, and you know, you take account of their their feelings and all the rest of it, which you know, all most of us do. But um, should you meet somebody who, for some reason, decides that they want to make an accusation, I'm not sure what your defence is. I'm not sure how you can avoid that. Uh, I would say don't meet those kind of people. Yeah, you could say don't ever go in a room on your own with a woman. Well, that would be <laughs> absurd, wouldn't it? As for Liam, he tried to turn his negative experience into a positive one for others. I didn't want other people to be going through this and think that they're alone. I didn't want people to feel the same way that I did. And most of all, I didn't want anyone to, that, that had been falsely accused to commit suicide. Um, that was my biggest um, thing, really, because I'd seen stories of people that had, and I, 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 the thought of it was you know if you could do something why are you not doing something and I'm now I mean my partner and I we co-direct a charity called The Defendant and that's been really therapeutic um, in terms of um, I I guess I don't know what the right word is but appeasing that need need to or or that feeling of needing to to do more with the experience that you've had and, and help as many people as possible um and I, I think it's only really recently where I now am like, okay, I've, we're six years on. I can't believe it. Six years, nearly six and a half years on from the case. Um, my main thought from from the day I was accused has been how can I use the experience to help other people? And a lot of it hasn't been, you know, who am I now that the case is kind of finished? What, what do I want to do with my life? You know, what, 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 what are my goals? Like, what uh, have I even thought about planning beyond 
what the case was. The effect of a false accusation can haunt victims for the rest of their lives. Ros Burnett explains. It's, a, it's different to any kind of offence, even though they've not been convicted. Um, they, they can't get the same kind of work again that involves working with children or working with doing kind of social work jobs. They can't do that because of the... Um, the enhanced um, disclosure, um, the DBS um, records will prevent them from getting that kind of work. And even if they could get that kind of work, they would feel uncomfortable. That's the kind of mud that sticks because nobody will ever be completely sure. You know, they, they, they'll feel that there was some reason for it. You know, that there has to be some, some substance to it. There's some kernel of truth at the very least. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been accused. And so they have that stigma, and it affects their, apart from their um, work, their vocation, and, how, um, and their opportunities to work again. Um, it affects their finances. It's extremely expensive to defend oneself in these cases. The trial can go on for a long time. And they have to draw on their pensions or their savings or... Um, even sell their house, you know, in order to defend themselves. It affects their health. It's extremely debilitating. There are immediate effects on their health where they go into shock and trauma, can't sleep. Um, and um, in many cases, they, their GPs say that they've got PTSD and they feel uh, they they close and shut themselves off, and they feel that they can't um, engage socially in the same way. The, the abuse, the alleged abuse, was against a child. They feel uncomfortable even playing with their own grandchildren. So they feel that they're being perceived that way all the time, and they have something to prove. Um, and those are the long-term effects. Um, they affect how they perceive themselves and their their identity um, and their relationships suffer as well because even though even when they've got family wives partners who support them family that support them the families suffer from it you know they feel when they're walking down the street that the publicity given in the both national and certainly local newspapers means that they're recognized or they fear that they're recognized um, and that they're perceived as an abuser. So it's something that stays with them. Well, we shouldn't for one second dismiss the pain and suffering caused to a genuine victim of rape or sexual assault. We need to resist the temptation to rig the justice system in favour of complainants. Dennis Eady again. It may be hard on genuine complainants, but believe me, it's hard on genuine defendants as well who may be innocent and go through the most horrendous nightmare um, and may end up in prison literally for decades as a result. Investigating rape, I suppose, or sexual offences, yes, it might lead to more trauma for the victim, for a genuine victim. But what are, what are people suggesting there? Are they suggesting that you don't investigate it, that you just simply go ahead and prosecute people? Um, the implications of that, I mean, you sit, sit back and think about the implications of that. It becomes the most uh, 
powerful weapon that any person can have. And we have seen this on occasions in in politics. Uh, you know, that uh, the fa- famous case of Nick who accused all sorts of people of all sorts of bizarre things and was believed by the police. If you do that, you have a weapon, the sexual accusation. If it's not going to be investigated, then that weapon can be used on anyone you like, whenever you like. Um, and the, if there's no defence, if there's no investigation and no defence, then anyone, for whatever reason, whether it's a mental illness, uh, a revenge for something else, uh, a belief that the person is a bad person in some way and therefore it doesn't matter what you do, you've created a weapon which for which there's no defence against and a weapon which can be grossly misused. Liam has offered to use his experience to help find a better balance for genuine victims and the falsely accused. And a lot of people seem to think that, you know, people that are falsely accused and real victims of rape and sexual assault are like on opposite sides of the the coin. And uh, um, in my opinion, we're not. I think like the only real way that there will be any progress made in it, uh, in that issue is if both sides work together and I've said so frequently, I'm really open to working with like the victims commissioner and, um, you know, the CPS directly and the police directly and, 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 you know, real victims to, to establish a a mutual understanding of what the best approach is that it may not be, it's not going to be perfect for both sides. Do you know, you know what I mean? Like it's never going to happen. That's a, a fantasy land that nobody will ever, agree upon that but if you can get both sides to agree to a a, an understanding of like a mutual level of respect for what the other you know what the other person or, or what somebody else's experience has been and is to try and find like a way that's not just safe in terms of justice but safe mentally as well for both because it's just as traumatic for for victims to to actually go through the court system for for two years and wait, and they're also reliving their trauma for two years, and so you, you like there there just needs to be that. No, there needs there just needs to be something better than just what's in place at the moment. Despite his willingness to help and support others, six and a half years after he was cleared, he's still deeply affected by what happened. And so when we um when we found out about the accusation, you know, like in the car, something inside me just just snapped. And and it's still kind of the same now. I still I love people, I love hanging around other people. I'm really still quite cautious. Subconsciously more than anything else. I don't even know I do it sometimes. But I'm I'm reluctant to have a fully fledged friendship you know like like it sounds so ridiculous but I'll, I'll have a friendship that makes sense in the context of where the friendship took place so maybe I'll turn up to occasions and 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 that kind of thing and and that's more that was more the focus and so if I'm there for the big events then then that's enough from me on my end and, and that way I'm also at a safe enough distance where um I can feel comfortable and, and secure in the knowledge that like I'm not or oh, any betrayal isn't going to feel so bad and it's still trying to work out who he is now I think that's maybe the key part to say like uh, I have 
a wonderful partner and, and an incredible um, daughter and, and a lot of support still around me but I'm still trying to work out who I am after this case um, and I spent quite a lot of time investing everything all energy resources everything that I had into um, just into being uh, I guess using the platform for other people The review into Liam's case by the Police and Prosecution Service found no wrongdoing on the part of the police officer in charge of investigating the complaint against Liam. There were also no consequences for the woman who made the complaint against him, and she is still protected by the anonymity given to all complainants since the 1970s. You can find out more about Liam's charity, The Defendant, on their website, thedefendant.org.uk. You can also find links to other support and resources on our website at theproblemwithmen.co.uk. This has been The Problem With Men podcast. Until next time, goodbye. The Problem With Men podcast is an Octopus Industries production. Produced and presented by Chris Dodd and produced by Sandra Cabasinguzi.